Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, this is New Books in Science Fiction, and I'm Rob Wolf with the Reanimates Are People Too edition of the show. <laughs> Today's episode focuses on a place where aliens and humans live side by side in a kind of symbiotic equilibrium, and there seems to be more human-on-human conflict than alien-human conflict. The place I'm talking about is a city in Nigeria invented by author Tade Thompson. That city is called Rosewater, which is, in fact, the name of Thompson's first book in his Wormwood trilogy. Rosewater earned him the inaugural Nome Award for Best Novel, which is Africa's first award for speculative fiction, and he was also a finalist for the John W. Campbell Award. The next book in the series is The Rosewater Insurrection, which is scheduled for release on March 12th. And now we're recording today at the end of February, but this episode is scheduled to air March 14th, which means that the Rosewater Insurrection is already ready for purchase. You can probably even buy it while you're listening. Tade Thompson is Skyping with me now from Portsmouth, which is a town on the southern coast of the United Kingdom. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. Tade, how are you? Hi, Rob. I'm very grateful to be here. Well, let's start off by giving listeners a sense of what the city of Rosewater is like. How did the city come to be? Uh, What's it like for the people who live there? And I guess most important of all is how did the alien around which the city is formed a bit like a donut get there? So my book, Rosewater, we should probably, you know, like you pointed out, this is the second in three books. So some of the history has already been established in the first book, Rosewater. Let's talk about the alien wormwood first. The alien is one out of two pronged attacks on human existence. One of them is the large, pretty amorphous alien called wormwood, that the humans called wormwood. And the other is a whole network of microorganisms, artificial micro, well, not artificial in terms of they're not human-made, but they're alien-made, um, which exist in the atmosphere. And those have been sent like ages ago to establish a kind of beachhead, you know, on Earth. 
but it wasn't that they were specifically targeting Earth. It was more like a scattershot approach, which, okay, well, just go out into the universe and find whatever planet has life and take root there. And the other larger ones, which came in the form of comets and meteorites, are the ones that kind of coalesced to become Wormwood itself, which kind of traveled in the Earth's crust and if initially landed in, you know, in London, and but later then traveled so in a subterranean path, it traveled and emerged again in Nigeria. Um, it, is, it stayed there, you know, and people realized that it had healing properties. So they basically built a town around it because obviously it became a, a healing resource. Um, so initially it was just camps, people here and there just gathering themselves. And then slowly those camps became more permanent dwellings and that those became houses and footpaths became roads. And all of a sudden, hey, we have a municipal government. And then it became a city over time. It doesn't take long for corporations to move in. Well, I think it's really hard to do both books justice in a short conversation. And I think you've conveyed some of the uh, complexity of the setting. There's one element I think maybe we should talk a little bit about, too, so people understand it, and that's the xenosphere. Yes. That's an important part of the story. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. Okay. Um because I've got, I have, I have backgrounds in computer networking as well as in biology. It was probably, you know, it was probably fate. I was always going to have to. I was always going to write about some form of, I guess, biological network. So the usual thing you get in alien invasions is an alien will come to Earth and will maybe say, "Take me to your leader," and then there will be a kind of exchange. We want this, so give us this. Otherwise, we're going to destroy you. And before the point of take us to your leader, there would have been several, you know, incursions to the earth, which are information gathering kind of things. And I felt that, okay, look, if what they want is information, you can passively gather information from people's brains, right? So the xenosphere, and xeno basically comes from alien, and then sphere is from, you know, massive environment, is basically a, a network of invisible filaments, made up of these organisms that I called, you know, xenoforms, which link together with each other, but also link with the sensory organs on people's skin. And from those organs, they link into, they follow the nerves up to the central nervous system, to the brain. And then they use that to extract information and store it in the xenosphere so that the earth is surrounded at all times by this network of information that is being gathered from every single human being. And it has been there for a long time. In fact, it's supposed to have been there since before civilization. Because of that, if the people who, or if the, if the entities who designed it were to ever turn up on Earth, then all they would have to do is plug into the Xenosphere and they would have all the information of all the ages. So they wouldn't actually have to ask human beings anything. They wouldn't have to go to the Library of Congress. They would just literally just exist inside the information and gather it all together and be able to do whatever it is they want through that. What has happened in my book, though, is there's a side effect of it that they weren't expecting. And this side effect is about 1% of the human population is able to access the xenosphere. And through the xenosphere, they're able to access the minds of other human beings that are around them. Well, actually, not just human beings, but I didn't go into a lot of detail about that. But anything that has a sufficiently complex brain can be accessed through the xenosphere. You know, so that's pretty much what it is. Um, it was designed, I, I used 
design elements of IP networking, IP version four, IP version six. So none of this will, I don't think any of this will mean anything to your readers who are not, you know, who are not, who don't work in IT or who are not interested in such things. But I pretty much worked out how information is gathered, how one packet of information gets from one to the other, how the network is kept alive by these small packets, which are keep alive packets. But all of that is, is, is networking jargon. It's not necessary for you to understand it. Well, that's all very impressive. And I think it probably also, your invention of this relies also on your expertise as a physician as well, because you're a psychiatrist. Isn't that right? I am. Yes, that's true. What that did. So basically, a lot of obviously the stuff from medical school and from microbiology and mycology, all of that was very, very useful. But also, in, one of the things I try to go into is what is the nature of thought? How do people think things? And how does that manifest? And how do you read someone's mind? Because you can't just... It's not like looking at a DVD or, or, or listening to a recording. People don't just have all of their life history laid out neatly in their brains. So if you imagine yourself sitting there right now, you are not thinking of where you were born until I just mentioned it right now. You weren't thinking I was born in blah. But if I were to read your mind right now, then you would have reviewed that information briefly when I said where, where you were born. And so if I, were, if I were a person who were trying to read your mind, and if I had that ability, I would have to prod you in some way to think about the things that I want to get from you. And is that how you work as a psychiatrist too? Of course, no. not not reading people's minds, but well, but you do. I assume there is a Q and A format in which you try to elicit key information. So there's probably strategies. Yeah, there is. I mean, there's a thing about therapy where one of the things that psychiatrists are trained to do is to deal with silences, but most most lay people are not. So most people find silences uncomfortable. We can use those. We can just sit down and stare at you while you struggle to fill the silence. But at least what you will fill the silence with is something you're thinking about. And that's what we want to get to so we can talk about that thing you're thinking about. You know, so what people fill the silences with, it can be important. It might not be, but it can be important. So, um, so yes, it is, you know, it, it is part of what we do, I suppose. I wanted to ask about the difference between the reception the aliens get or the alien gets in Britain, which is just very briefly mentioned as a part of the history of the alien, yeah. but apparently it crashes into Hyde Park and they assault it. And it sounds like that assault leads it to leave and go to Nigeria. Yes. And it sounds like in Nigeria, they also do initially try to repel it, but very quickly, it seems like they ultimately embrace it. And I wonder if that says something about the two nations or or was the alien just doing a better salesmanship job when it got to Nigeria? <laughs> Interesting. It does say something about the two nations. Okay. There is a whole history of this world that doesn't come out in the books. So I will I will briefly summarize what happened in when it, you know when it crash landed in London. So it crash lands into Hyde Park destroys a whole bunch of things as a protective measure it actually has it contains within itself fissionable material so you know you know when you when you want to sterilize things you can you actually irradiate them to ster you can you can have um surgical instruments and the like that are sterilized through irradiation so it believes that if it can irradiate the area around it while it is developing then it will keep it safe 
So when it lands, there's fissionable material out there. So there's a bit of confusion. People don't know, has this been a missile attack? Is that why they're detecting, you know, is that why there's radiation? Is it a suicide bombing, you know, with a stray nuke? Is it a dirty bomb? Nobody knows why there has been a meteorite landing and there's radiation everywhere. Uh, so obviously they cordon it off. This takes about 10 years, by the way. They cordon it off and say everybody should keep out. Some people don't keep out. And they kind of survive in that zone between the cordon and the alien itself. But what happened is that it's developing. So it reabsorbs all of that radiation. It doesn't harm anyone with the radiation. It doesn't, it doesn't explode or anything like that. But what, what happens finally is that they decide, that's the British government, you know, decide that, okay, look, they need to find out what's going on and they need to try and kill it in case it's dangerous. So they send a team and there's no real agreement between the nations what to actually do. And the people who go in to try and kill it are actually, they're kind of rebels. But anyway, they go and they try to kill it. They find what they think is its brain and they destroy it. But they then realize that actually they can't destroy it because the brain wasn't a true brain. It was just, it was just a mimicry of human anatomy. It was in its, in its bid to understand human anatomy, it had broken down one human being, which is Anthony, which you, you, know, which you know about. But while it was trying to understand it, it built a, it built a gigantic scale model of the brain. Um, but that was not its brain. That was just a scale model with which it was understanding the human mind or the human brain. So they destroyed that and it didn't die, but it then realized what they were trying to do. So it basically submerged itself or sunk back into the earth and traveled around and ended up in Nigeria. Now, the difference is when it got to Nigeria and when it emerged, first of all, people started realizing that around a particular area, there was healing. All right. But people didn't know why, but they kept going there and getting healed. So they went there and they started, you know, accepting that. And other people kept arriving and arriving and arriving. Then Anthony kind of manifested himself you know, with a human body because he'd been experimenting on it. And they interacted with him in, in almost in a messianic way. Like here's a person who is healing us. So they kind of, he became friends with them in a sense. So the, a whole community built around him. But when the government, especially when S45 found out about him, I think they wanted to take him into custody. There was no real agreement as to how to deal with him. So one of the cowboys in the department decided we have to really destroy this person. They didn't, it didn't work. He, they can't kill him. So, you know, he built a dome around himself and said, whoever wants to come in can come in. So that community that was there already, they went inside the dome and everybody else was locked out. And that's basically the difference between how the two countries dealt with him. Does it say something about the cultural difference or it just happens to be just different circumstances? Well, it's different circumstances. So, for example, when it arrived... Wormwood itself was relatively young. It was a young creature that was unsure of the environment, didn't know what was safe or not. So in order to protect itself, it sent out, it sent out radiation. Um, it didn't do that in Nigeria. So their reaction to it, so basically it's different human reactions rather than inherent things about the, the, um, about the nations. It was, more, it was like a human reaction. Something comes that is a threat, then they respond with violence. Something comes that is healing them, then they respond with friendship. At least half of them responded to friendship. The other half responded with violence, but there you go. I wanted to explore 
the structure of the first book versus the second book. Yes. Because in the first book, one of the most obvious differences is that you really have one primary character, Caro, yes. who plays the role of a sensitive, which is one of those 1% people you described who are able to access the xenosphere and so he ends up working for s45 which is kind of like the secret service for nigeria questioning thugs and such and reading their minds but also communicating with the alien and he's a very complex and interesting character yes and then in the rosewater insurrection the second book there are really multiple lead characters and caro is there but you really have a lot of multiple viewpoints and i wondered why you decided to make a change and how that affected what you could do with the story. So my broad, the broad way I was thinking about the stories when I, you know, when I conceived them, you know, the way I conceived of the whole trilogy was this. I'd start off by talking about how this invasion has affected one man. Then I would expand it in the second book to how it has affected a, a country. And in the third book, how it affects basically all of us. So the idea really was to start with a tight focus. If you think about it in like a, like a film, tight focus on one person. And if you if you if you think about Rosewater a bit, it's actually it's a, it's almost like a character based book disguised as a plot based book. All right, it's more like a character study of Cairo himself. And the reason, and, and that's why there's such a tight focus on him, at the same time focusing on what's going on around him. But it's mainly a character study of Caro. Now, I thought it was going to be, the reason it jumps back and forth is that I realized that he was two different people, when, you know, one when he was young and one when he was older. So I realized that actually, if I jump back and forth, I would be getting two characters for the price of one. Rather than the, because the problem, obviously the problem with a first person narrative is, you can't really get out of that person's head. That's usually the problem of point of view. Right. You can't get out of the head of the one person. And you run the risk of the reader getting bored of only hearing the point of view of this one person and this one character. So instead, I've ha- I have two characters. I have young Kara and old Kara. And they tie together perfectly because the young Kara is explaining how the older Kara came to be. I mean, it's really his, his own backstory. Yes, it was a pain. I, I you know, it, people read this, but you don't. You have to understand. It was a pain getting their lives to dovetail. It was such a pain getting the parallels between the young one and the old one. Getting the, all of that right. You know, planting the seeds of you know the older one in the life of the young one, making sure that everything was consistent, the continuity, all of that. It gave me endless headaches. I must tell you, it took a whole. It took a long time to do to do, but ultimately it was satisfying. Um, I was quite happy with the end result. So yeah, the first one was like that, but in the second one, I felt like it was time for the character, you know, for the camera to pull back and for us to see a wider section of the environment, or, you know, of the life that of the place that he lives in. And I thought that, you know, in book one, I think it was. We had understood Caro enough. We had understood his character to a to a great extent, longer, you know, I think to to a greater depth than many other characters could ever be explored. So it, there was no need to dig into Caro's life in book two anymore. So book two was more about establishing a, the wider society rather than life through this one 
almost claustrophobic um, view viewpoint. And in the second one, in the Rosewater Insurrection, many of those multiple characters, and I dare say I think probably the most important of the various viewpoints from which you tell the story, are female characters. And the male characters, including Caro, seem to be, I don't want to say more passive, but they seem to be more in the role of uh, helping or dependent on the women who are leading the charge, you know, particularly Femi and Aminat, who are both agents with S-45. Um, and there's a few others, too, including a character, Oyen Da, yes. who says, or I don't know if she even says this or if Caro reads it in her mind, something along the lines that any community can be assessed by the way it treats women. Yes. And so that made me think, what does the prominence of so many powerful female characters in the Rosewater books tell us about the story and about you, the author? Right. Well, it tells you that I had really strong sisters growing up. Yeah, I, I, I figured something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that if you if you if you think about your average sub-Saharan African country, now, you immediately assume, okay, you know, there's lots of misogyny, and there is. I'm not saying there isn't any. There is. And you assume that it, this, it's, a lot, it's mainly male-dominated type societies and the like. However, the women actually hold the society up, right? I, I have found, I suppose, that there's a lot of visual, there's a lot of posturing by men, all right? There's a lot of posturing, a lot of, like, yes, they hold the temporal power or whatever, but there's a lot of there's also a lot of underestimation of the amount of work that women do to hold society up. So from what you said, for example, you know, for you know, in and it is true in book two, a lot of the roles, a lot of the prominent roles are played by women. But you will also notice that the actual temporal power is held by men. Like, you know, the president is a man and the mayor is a man. You know, all of that. You know, it's almost like the ceremonial power belongs to the men, but the women are actually propping, you know, doing the actual work right. to make everything function. I mean, if you think about it, the mayor hardly ever leaves the mansion for most of the book, and the women are the ones running around fighting and yeah. shooting and risking their lives. And thinking. And thinking. Oh, absolutely. Let's just say it has these, you know, it reflects my observations. That's, that's just, it's just what I've seen. Um, particularly even in even in diaspora communities, women hold everything up. Women in the black community hold pretty much everything up, all right? And possibly, you know, one could argue that they don't get enough props for that. But what, you, you know, what I've done in the book is I've basically reflected a reality that I see. So they don't get enough props for it, but they do the work. They sometimes don't hold the temporal power, but they do the actual work. You know, that's that's the reason for it. It was a very it was a very deliberate choice. Initially, when you introduce the alien, it takes a while for for both Caro to understand and therefore the reader to understand that the alien's intention is really basically to take over the planet and to occupy humans as vessels for their own displaced alien species, which are being stored on their moon, on their planet far, far away. Yeah. But that takes a while to be revealed. And in the meantime, the alien presents as a very benevolent being. 
healing everyone, even even bringing the dead back to life, basically as zombies that they call reanimates. But it seems overall well-intentioned, even if the reanimates seem a little like a mistake as they're sort of wandering around. But eventually we realize Wormwood's real intention. But even then, Aminat goes back and forth. I mean, she empathizes and feels compassion for Wormwood's avatar in the second book, this woman named Alyssa, this white woman, this white American woman named Alyssa that the alien has taken over. And I thought that was a very interesting choice. And it certainly felt a lot more like real life rather than some kind of thriller where the bad guy is always bad. Well, okay, let's look, let's look at it this way. Okay. Who, who, where is the universal agreement that people are evil? Let's go into ISIS camps. Okay. Do you think any of the ISIS fighters believes that they are evil? No. Nobody thinks they're evil. Nobody thinks that. All right. They don't think, right, I am now an evil person. I'm going to do these evil things. That's cartoons. All right. That's the most simplistic kind of morality play. That is not what happens in real life. In real life, what people have are competing interests. And it is competing interests that make you classify someone as either evil or not evil. And that very much depends on the perspective from which you're doing the classification. Now, some people's interests are warped sometimes by childhood problems, sometimes by distorted brain function, whatever. Um, So if you take, say, a serial killer who is killing and killing and killing and killing and killing, something about his perspective has become warped. But he doesn't think that. And I'm using he not to say that there couldn't be female serial killers, just that most of the ones who have been caught have been male. So that's why I'm saying he. Going back to the alien, the alien avatar, one, never lied about what he was there for. He didn't lie to Kara or anybody. He didn't tell them anything, but he didn't lie about anything at all. Now, think about the healing. The healing, we think of it as a good thing because it helps us. But in actual fact, what he's doing is he's maintaining the crops. He's maintaining the vessels in good condition, right? This is not a good thing, and I'm using air, you know, I'm using air quotes here. This is not a good thing. This is just work. He is maintaining the vessels pending the arrival of the people, of the aliens. So he's keeping them in good working condition so that they can be occupied. And again, it's a matter of perspective. If you had, you know, if you had tuberculosis or I don't know if you had lung cancer or something, you went there, you got healed, you would think the aliens are good. If you flip it and ask the alien, what are you doing? I'm looking after, I'm looking after the vessels so that when they need to be occupied, they'll be in good condition. I'm keeping the house clean, basically. That's what I'm saying. It's a matter of perspective. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. The various alien fauna are not necessarily in alliance because Wormwood's greatest enemy, it seems, is a plant that it brought with it. And so the plant is also alien. And at some point, the plant looks like it's going to be the hero of the story for some of the humans because it's going to contain the alien spread. But even that changes at a different point. And the allegiances shift to Caro and Aminat wanting to kill the plant to protect the alien. I mean, it's very interesting seeing the allegiances shift like that. Yeah. And <laughs> OK, so. Okay, imagine if Earth were occupying another planet, okay? So imagine if you had China, USA, and America dominating the space race going over there. They would not all agree on how it should be done. And you could find them fighting proxy wars even on another planet, you know, because they pretty much could not agree. There's no way you're going to have 7 billion human beings on one world, and they're all going to agree on strategy. It's just not going to happen. You know, they're just not going to. So there are going to be disagreements as to how things should be done. And even though the plant in insurrection is something that it was an unforeseen consequence, basically, it was deliberately placed inside Wormwood, deliberately placed inside Wormwood to make to moderate its growth. Otherwise, it would it would overcome all the resources on the planet. So it was deliberately placed there. But there's something about being on Earth that has empowered that the, the plant itself, which which makes it become an adversary to to Wormwood. Now, one of the things the humans don't agree on is what to save. Do you save Wormwood or do you save the plant? And you know, I'm not going to go too much into that because obviously it's part of the plot of the book and so on. But it's again about self-interest. It's about what perspective are you viewing each alien from? And the perspective of it determines what you do. It determines the actions that you take. And one of the things, especially this week, what someone told me this week about, you know, about Rosewater is that, actually, no, it was about Rosewater insurrection, was that they don't know who to root for, you know? And, and to me, that just means that I've been successful in in showing the different points of view and the reasons for them doing what they're doing without bias so in other words my own particular idea of good or evil didn't bleed onto it which is what i is kind of what i wanted to happen your approach i wonder if that's more of a nigerian or african or certainly non non-Hollywood approach, non-American approach, which tends towards, in its most basic form, you know, simpler stories of good and evil. <laughs> like, certainly Africa and Nigeria has probably experienced a lot of turnover politically. So your perspective is informed by that, about the complexity of these situations. Things aren't usually as simple as, as maybe we'd like to make them seem in a, in a classic Hollywood tale. Talking a little bit about Hollywood, 
I mean, I don't like where we are right now in Hollywood in terms of understanding the complexities of competing interests. But it certainly seems like old Hollywood understood that a bit better. I mean, this is the same Hollywood that Casablanca comes out of, for example. You know, there are older films where you were allowed to be a little bit ambiguous about who's good, who's not good, who's, you know, what's, who should we root for here and everything. I think what's happened over time is everything has become more simplified and streamlined. I think that independent films in America, I think they're, they are more, they're more able to embrace ambiguity. I mean, I think, God, what was that film? You were never, you were never here that I watched recently with Joaquin Phoenix. It's, it's also, it's based on a, on a, on a small, on a novella. Um, and he's a person who's come back either from Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, he does have PTSD, but it's not it's not classical PTSD. He exists in some kind of twilight world where he can be employed to go and find missing children. He has a guy who helps him find these people, and he stumbles into. He's not a good guy, you know, because he obviously gets off on the violence, but then again. If you flash back to his childhood, not, not what he experienced in the war zones, but in his childhood, there was terrific abuse in his childhood, which we only see in flashes, but comes to explain his own violent tendencies. Because, again, when he's visiting vengeance on those who have kidnapped the children, he uses, he uses a hammer, which is what his father used. So the point I'm making is that there are complex stories being told in American cinema. It's just not out of Hollywood per se. It's more out of the independence. Yeah, I, lo- I just looked it up. It was uh, actually Amazon Studios. You were never really here, 2017. Yeah. yeah, you were never really here. You know, so I, I think if you are influenced by mainstream Hollywood, then it does tend to, the oh, well, this is the evil side and this is the good side. And then they will go on a quest or on a battle and all will be lost. And then around... Act three, you know, the good guys will win and that'll be that. Because my tendency is usually, you know, my tendency is usually to, to, to read a lot of different cultures and read history and anthropology. And if you read those things, if you don't get it pre-digested for you, you will see that everything is complicated. Everything is complicated by interest, by self-interest, by systemic interest, by global interests. It's all complicated by all of that. So it's very difficult to point to someone and say this person was evil is why they're there. Even if you take someone like Hitler, he was propped up by cowardice around him. You know, the people around him were cowards and they thought they could get their own way by being close to him. And that empowered him to get the things that he wanted. And they got stuck in that kind of loop. Because even Nazis, they didn't believe they were evil. They did not. They didn't think they were evil. So in particular, if you take someone like Rommel, who was, you know, who liked to define himself as a soldier, and not a Nazi, um, he, his belief was that he was doing what he was meant to be doing and not following the Nazi agenda, even though what he was doing was supporting the Nazi agenda. So it's never as simple as that. I like to read about people. I read lots of biographies in addition to reading history and everything. So I like to read about what people think about themselves in you know, in a system that is considered to be evil and the like, and nobody thinks they're evil. That's kind of where my view on that was born. Well, to your point that if humans tried to colonize another planet and many nations were represented, they they would 
very likely at some point start fighting with each other. The insurrection in the second book, in the Rosewater Insurrection, wasn't what I expected when I, you know, saw the title, finished the first book, picked up the second. You know, I thought it would be a book about mankind's insurrection against the alien, but it's really about the town of Rosewater's insurrection against the greater Nigeria and the Rosewater mayor, Jack Jacques, declaring Rosewater an independent state. And so they get invaded by the Nigerian army. And I wondered why, and it probably ties into what you were just explaining, but your decision to make it a conflict of human versus human more than a conflict of human versus alien, although that's still an element. Yes. It's supposed to be something, it's supposed to be an echo of the civil war that already happened. Some of the background of the civil war in Nigeria was around resources. Actually, which was aren't about resources. Um, some of it was around resources, and Rosewater itself is a resource in of itself. At the end of the book, you get to understand the whys of it, and book three kind of clarifies it a little bit more. But because you know there, there is that conflict already between Jack and the president, it just seemed natural that it was also going to billow into country politics and war. They're already dealing with something they don't understand. And the human tendency when they don't understand something is to lash out one way or the other. So they both both sides needed to lash out one way or the other. So they ended up lashing out at each other. You know, in something that if you look at it in hindsight it was completely avoidable. But was it though? Every war, if you look at any war at all, you always think, okay, this is this is avoidable. There was no need to do this. But again, the question becomes, well, was it? You know, this was always going to happen. Anytime when you get prolonged uncertainty with human beings, conflict is usually the outcome. And now I wanted to ask you a little bit about just your writing career, actually. I I saw in a previous interview, you said, I write what I want and I give no excuses or justifications. Yes. And I wonder how that's played out in your career. I imagine always writing what you want doesn't always fit with what an editor wants, for instance. <laughs> okay, I take the editing process different. Like for Rosewater, for example, I already knew what I was going. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the end of the story already, and I had to pitch all three books in order to get a contract for any of you know for for all three books. So I basically pitched the entire story. So I had the synopsis for all three books ready to go with the first book. So I pitched that. So well, look, this is what I'm going to write. And to make matters worse, I'm more of a I'm more of what's called a pantser in that I don't plan the books. You know, I don't plan every scene. I don't plot every scene out before I start. I basically start with knowledge of the end, knowledge of where I'm trying to get to, and maybe knowledge of a few scenes that are going to happen along the way. But I don't plot the whole thing before. You know, what I do is I strike out and I just start going. And then when I get to the end... You know, I leave it for a month, I come back to it, and then I start imposing whatever structure I can find in there. So I don't I don't deliver a plot before I start writing. It's not, you know, for Rosewater, it wasn't really hard. I mean, I think, you know, myself and the editor had our, you know, we had the usual editor's conflict. Like, well, why don't you explain this a bit more? And me saying, well, no, I don't want to explain it a bit more because people aren't stupid. People will figure this out. And even when I think I've laid enough breadcrumbs, I'll say, well, look, they can understand this because of blah, 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 blah. And 
manager will say, well, actually, that's been so long ago that they've forgotten, so you need to remind them. You know, so editors are very important because they bring, they to me, they represent the reader and they make you, they, they bring you down to earth from the sky where you're flying. So they make you realize that, look, there is someone reading this book and you have to make it easy for the person to some extent. And so I think I think that part works. I, I actually have very good relationships with my editors. And I think the reason that works is because I don't go to the editor and say, I am about to write this. What I do is I write it and say, well, look, I've written this book. Do you like it? What I don't do is take, I guess, instructions about what to write. So I, you know... I will write what I want. So, for example, my Molly Southbourne books, there's one of those coming out in in July this year, that the survival of Molly Southbourne. And I didn't take any, you know, I, I did not like take instructions about writing that. I just said, I've written this second book to the Molly Southbourne book. Do you want to have a look at it? That's what I that's what I said. And that's it. I mean, I I don't think I'm not the kind of person who can write something like the wheel of time. I can't do that because I'm interested in a lot of things. So to write more than seven books on something is something I find inconceivable. I have to write what interests me. I can't write, I can't write to order. And it's one of the reasons why people call, you know, if there's an anthology call, for example, I often don't respond to it because I can't write something because of a theme that is already set for me. I have to find, I have to have my own theme, something that interests me already. And sometimes because of the way I write, I don't even know what's going to happen in the stories that I'm writing. So I have to feel my way to the end of the story and then start looking for the themes in it. People have often come to me and said, well, look, can you write this story for us based on this theme? And I say, no. Not that I don't want to work with the editor, and not that I don't want the money, but I can't write like that. Because, it, you know, when if you write to order, and some people can do it, but because I can't do it, it will take the joy of actually writing from me. And if you can't enjoy writing, then what's the point? That is so well said. Let me ask you about another thing I read in an interview. You said, personally, not a lot terrifies me anymore because I have had to confront my own mortality a few times in my short life. And I'm curious to hear if you're willing to share about those brushes with mortality. And I imagine it ties in with your writing because in your Rosewater books and your Molly Southbourne stories, there's a lot of dying and near-death experiences, and there's rebirth, too. <laughs> okay, let me put it this way. I have walked away from six car accidents in my time alone, just six. On two of those occasions, the cars burst into flames, and I walked out of them. On one occasion, I was flung off a bridge, off a motorcycle, off a bridge. I wasn't right. I was a passenger, and the person who was riding the bike was was drunk, I, I later found out. Anyway, I was knocked off the bike, off a bridge, spun in the air, and so on. I've come out of a burning house before. My, myself, my sister, and my older brother once escaped from a mob that was trying to kill us, which is a long story. And for about 18 months, one time, let's just say that we had no access to money for 18 months and we were in hiding in the bush for 18 months. So I've had to starve before as well. So death doesn't scare me. Starvation doesn't scare me. You know, I'm not actually afraid of certain things like, for example, losing my job or not having money or being killed or 
just you know just not existing. I've already confronted those things, um, and I've made peace with them. So if they happen, they happen. If they don't happen, good. You know. So basically, for me, every day is a bonus already. You know, that's that's as far as I can say on that. I mean, I want to say wow, but that really doesn't do it justice. But I can definitely <laughs> see why you write whatever the hell you want to write, <laughs> having lived through that. And that's certainly a lot of material as well to work with, just in terms of inspiration. Well, it is. I mean, if you okay, if you remember, there's a scene, there's a scene in Insurrection where, sorry, spoiler alert, look, look away now if you don't want to hear this. But there's a scene in Insurrection where Jack is in a in a car with um, with Walter. And behind, and, you know, and behind them is the car that the bodyguards were in, and that car is on fire. So Walter can see that there's fuel dripping onto the road from that, and he thinks it's petrol, so that it's, you know, maybe there's going to be an explosion and everything. And Jack turns around and looks at it and says, "No, no, 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 it's not petrol. That that's just the body fat of the people who are burning in the car." Right. Right. Now, I have seen that. The reason I know this is because I've actually seen it. Oh, my. You know, this is, it's, this is what happens when people die inside a car and the car is burning. Their body fat starts to leak out. You know, it sinks to the lowest point and then it starts to drip out of the car and forms pool. It forms pools on the tarmac afterwards. You know? Well, you've left me speechless. I, I guess that's. <laughs> I guess that means I have no more questions. <laughs> I suppose what I'm saying is, look, I've seen death. I've seen it close up. I've seen, I've seen all kinds of things. So, I I suppose I am writing about death from a you know from a vantage point of having seen a lot of it. I guess. And you you work in an emergency department too. I do. I do. Yes. You see a lot of other people's crises as well. Yes. Well. It's a bit of a somber note to end the interview on, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. No, we got to say something cheerful. We can't leave it like that. Well, so then, tell me something cheerful. <laughs> I'm cheerful. Well, I'm really glad about how the, I guess, how readers have, you know, accepted the books. I think that Rosewood has done very, very well. People have talked about it quite a bit. It's been discussed a lot. People, I get so much good feedback from fans. Um, it has really been, for me, a, a very good 18 months. You know, fans, critics, publishers, everybody's been saying very good things about it. You know, everybody has been doing that. And, and that's, for me personally, has been, has been quite gratifying because I will tell you this, when I finished writing it, at least the first book, I was thinking, look, if this does not, if people don't like this book, then it means I can't do this anymore. Because I can't, at the time I was writing that, I felt I can't do better than this at this time. This is the best I can possibly write right now. So if this doesn't get published, then I'm going to go and take up, I don't know, the banjo or something. Weren't you just nominated for another award or am I mad? Is that something else? You're not imagining it. I was, um, last week, uh, the finalist for the British Science Fiction Association Best Novel. So I'm a finalist for that. I will find out sometime in Easter, in April. Unfortunately, it's not it's not eligible for the Hugo Award or the Nebulas because it was published before. Because it was initially published as um, in 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 small press. Oh, I didn't realize that. What was the journey to publication? Well, um, Apex Books was the first you know were the first publishers of it, and then it was bought out by Orbit. There was an, yeah, there's, you can still find copies of the old one, but I think it's selling for like two hundred and something pounds you know, on, on eBay or something. You can still find copies of the old one. And so um, Orbit bought it and they did a re-edit and a new cover and everything. And that's, that's how we got to where we are now. 
Well, fantastic. So that is a very positive note on which to end the interview. Yes. So thank you so much for coming on New Books and Science Fiction. It was really great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Tade Thompson is the author of The Rosewater Insurrection, released by Orbit on March 12th. And it's the second book in the Wormwood Trilogy. And let me just ask you, uh, when is the third book coming out, actually? The third book is coming out in September this year. So you do not have to wait. So people get reading now, so you're ready for it. And uh, if you haven't signed up already, please subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction. That way you'll never miss an episode. And please leave a review. You just have to click the number of stars. And hopefully that's five stars. But of course, that's up to you. But I don't think you need to even write a review. Just click five stars. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf. You can visit me at robwolf.net or on Twitter at robwolfbooks. And thank you so much for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.